Hello, my name's Eliza. Um, we'll be reading from 1 Thessalonians 1. In your pamphlet or in a Bible in front of you. Paul, Silas and Timothy. To the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you, not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Achaia, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it. For they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus, who rescues us from the coming wrath. You know, brothers and sisters, that our visit to you was not without results. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please people, but God, who tests our hearts. You know we never use flattery, nor did we put up on our master cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. We work night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while they preach the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And we also thank God continually, because when you receive the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it, not as a human word, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is indeed at work in you who believe. For you, brothers and sisters, became imitators of God's church in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own people the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to everyone, in the effort to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. The wrath of God has come upon them at last.
Thanks, Eliza. Really happy that you pronounced Roth Roth. One of the things I've noticed is that we're going the American way and it's all about wrath these days. Uh, that's a battle that I'm never going to win, but I thought I'd just have a free hit now. Um, if you've got that passage open in front of you, please don't shut it. We'll be working through it for the rest of the day. Um, let me tell you something that I discovered when I was growing up. Um, I learned very, very quickly never to introduce my friends to my mother. Now, the reason for that, I mean, you've probably learnt this too, right? But the reason for that in my case is not because she was rude or that, you know, she wasn't nice or she was just embarrassing just in her person, but she had a particular talent at retelling stories from my childhood. Now, these stories, they weren't the nice, you know, cute Matt stories where, you know, like, oh, Matt was so adorable. When he was just two, he'd step up on the stool and heat up his own milk in the microwave, which I did, by the way, but no, it was never anything positive. Uh, No, it was usually the story that kind of went like, did you know that when Matt was young, he used to store his cookies in the potty and when he wanted them, he would go and get them from the potty. And you're just like, mum, you're not supposed to say those things to my mates. Now, the embarrassment aside, one of the things that my mum has done for me in telling those stories again and again and again to my friends (laughs) is that she has filled in for me a lot of my own knowledge of my childhood. A lot of the things that I kind of had vague recollections of or memories of, like the time I stepped on the slug outside my grandma's house and screamed the house down, she was actually able to fill in the details for me. And I actually have a very accurate picture of what went down as I was growing up that I wouldn't have had if it wasn't for her authoritative voice speaking into the confusion or the lack of memory of my life. Now, this week, we're starting a new series in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Uh, We'll be doing it uh, today through to the end of semester. Four weeks, five chapters. Today, we're going to do two of those chapters, and then we're going to slow the pace right down when we get back from the mid-sem break, because that's what we can handle with the exams coming up. Uh, And in these first two chapters today, we see Paul doing what my mum did to me, speaking to his spiritual children and telling their story back to them so that they will know who they are and what happened. Now, to get us on board, I think there are three critical pieces of information uh, that we need to know. Uh, First of all, the church at Thessalonica is young. So it was evangelised into existence by Paul in the recent past. So it probably hasn't even hit its first birthday yet. So the church, the Thessalonians, it's still a baby. Uh, Second, the church is leaderless. Now, you can read about this in Acts chapter 17, where we actually see the report of what happened. But basically, here's the summary. Paul was so successful in persuading people to Christ that the Jewish locals formed a mob and they drove Paul out of town. Now, it's hard to establish the timeline, uh, but he was actually really only with them for anywhere between three weeks and a couple of months. So it wasn't long. Uh, It certainly didn't have much time to establish new believers in the faith. I mean, at the CU, we find that really difficult over the three years of your undergrad. And that's even assuming that you're with us with PM and small groups and that sort of stuff regularly. So so a couple of months at max, it's not a lot. So not only do we have a church that is a baby, but now we also have a church who has lost its parent, doesn't have a leader. Uh, Third, and this is, I think, the key one, the circumstance, the church at Thessalonica is facing persecution. The same people that drove Paul out uh, and drove that parent out have now turned and they're attacking the child. And Paul knows this. He knows that they're alone, that they're helpless, 
that they're in danger and he can't get back to them for a whole bunch of reasons. And so like a mother separated from his child, he is consumed by just one question. Is my child alive? Are they still faithful to Jesus? And so basically, this letter of 1 Thessalonians emerges out of that space. Now, there's already been some communication between them. He sent Timothy, his kind of ministry apprentice, off on a covert operation uh, to kind of suss out the situation. And Timothy comes back. It's good news. The Thessalonians are not just surviving, but they're thriving. But the threat, as far as Paul is concerned, is still real because they're still young. They still have no leader and they're still being persecuted. And so his overriding concern for them is to make sure that the faith that they have attained is one that they continue in. He wants to establish them in their faith for fear that they will actually let go of Jesus and let go of the salvation that he brings. And so if you've got your Bibles there, let's have a look at how he approaches this situation. This is what he says, uh, and we'll go from the top. We'll look at verse 1, and I'll read the first couple of verses for us. It says this, Paul, Silas, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. We always thank God for all of you and continually mention you in our prayers. We remember before our God and Father your work produced by faith, your labour prompted by love, and your endurance inspired by hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you. Because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. You know how we lived among you for your sake. Look at those verses. I want to draw your attention really to two things because Paul is doing two things here. Uh, He he says in verse 4 what he knows. And then in verse 5, he says what they know. And so what he's doing here is he is retelling their story back to them and bringing their attention to what he knows and then what they know so that they can know that what they have in Christ is true. The message is true. Your faith is true. So don't listen to your persecutors. They are wrong. If they tell you you are hoodwinked, you are wrong. They are wrong. And so what we're going to do today is we're going to listen in on this two-part story. What I know, what you know. And we're going to suss out what's happening for the Thessalonians, their childhood story. And then we're going to ask the question, what is it that we know? Okay, so you with me so far? That's how we're going to do it. So first of all, let's have a look at what I know, what Paul knows. And he tells us there in verse 4. For we know, brothers and sisters loved by God, that he has chosen you. That's a pretty bold claim, don't you think? Uh, if you've been through the CU First Year small groups, highly recommended, by the way, uh, you will know how controversial this claim is. You have been chosen by God. Because the very first question we ask in the very first study is this. If you died today, on a scale of 1 to 10, how sure would you be of receiving eternal life? And it's just like throwing a grenade in and then just watching the chaos. Like the answers are absolutely everywhere. And I want to say that if we can't even answer that question for ourselves, how could we possibly answer it on behalf of somebody else, let alone somebody that we have only spent three weeks to two months with? And yet that is precisely what Paul is doing. So what is it that gives him the confidence to say that he knows 
that the Thessalonians are chosen by God. That their faith is genuine, saving faith. Well, he tells us, as we keep reading in verse 5, this is how he knows. We know, brothers and sisters, loved by God, that he has chosen you because our gospel came to you not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and deep conviction. So basically, he says two things have happened. Uh, And you kind of registered there in the words, not simply and also. They came in words, but it also came in power. So the first thing he says is that it came in words. Now, it's significant that he says it didn't simply come in words. It doesn't just say it came instead of words. And that tells us that the words that he spoke, the words of that message, are necessary. Uh, And that's something that's really important for us to understand from a theological point of view. Saving faith cannot come come apart from people speaking the message to them. It comes to them in words. Uh, It will always come through the speaking of the gospel, whether it's written, whether it's spoken, whatever it is. We see this in Romans chapter 10, verse 17, uh, pretty famous proof text. Faith comes through hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. And so some of you may have heard that saying uh, wrongly attributed to Francis of Assisi, go out into all the world and preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Absolute rubbish. No amount of godly behaviour is going to make people wise for salvation through faith in Christ Jesus. It's just not going to happen. There is something about the gospel, the message of salvation, that carries with it information that is required to be communicated. It's not the only thing. We're about to see this in the second half of the verse. But if we don't have that clear in our heads, then the way that we operate on campus is going to be completely confused and destined to fail. And that's why Paul says in the verse, verse 5 there, there's an also. It's not simply with words, but also with power, with the Holy Spirit and with deep conviction. Now, if I said to you, guys, I don't want you to be alarmed, but I was looking before you arrived in public meeting, there is a bomb underneath this lecture theatre. And if we don't get out of here now, it's going off in about 60 seconds. I've checked the time. Why aren't you moving? (laughs) I gave you my message with words. Something else is needed, right? And that something else is conviction. It is only when you are fully persuaded that my words are true that you will respond and let them affect you and change the way that you live. You would have gotten up. You would have run out of there. You wouldn't have stayed seated. And what Paul says to the Thessalonians is, I saw you get up. I saw you run, if you will. When I brought my message to you, it wasn't like, oh, yeah, great message, Paul, that's fantastic. I'll put it in my back pocket and you just go back to watching YouTube all day. No, when my message came to you, you heard it. And by the power of the Holy Spirit, you were fully convicted that what I was saying was true. And it completely changed your life. And what he does in the rest of this chapter, in chapter 1, is he outlines for us what it is that he has seen that tells him that their conviction is genuine. Now, there's a whole bunch of different ways we can cut this cake, but really I want to draw your attention to two of them. Two things that could not have happened apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, which means that God has actually chosen them. And as we work through them, there's just two of them, I want you to have this in the back of your mind, because I think they translate to us, even though he's speaking to the Thessalonians. Is this true of me as well? Okay. So here's the first one. 
They welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering. This is verses 6 and 7. Let's have a read. You became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so you became a model of, to all the believers in Macedonia and Archaea. Now, for those of you who know your Bibles, uh, you'll be familiar with the parable of the sower. Uh, and in that parable, Jesus lists four different types of responses that people have to the word when it is preached to them. And one of them is the stony ground. Now, do you remember the stony ground? He scatters the seed, which is the word. It falls on the stony ground. The, sh- the soil is shallow. And these people receive the message with joy. They grow up really fast. But as soon as persecution comes... They wither and they die. They give up. It's easier not to have to deal with all the flack that you get from your classmates, from your tutes, from your friends, uh, from your family, the pressures from online, social media, if you're in a college, all your friends in your corridors. And what Jesus says is that type of person, whilst it looks good at the start, they're not a genuine believer. But in contrast to the stony soil, the rocky soil, the Thessalonians welcome the message with joy in the midst of persecution. So when Paul came to Thessalonica, he came from Philippi, and you see this in chapter 2, verse 2, where he had been illegally beaten by the government. And then when he arrives at Thessalonica, the, the locals start a citywide riot, presumably to do the same thing to him again. And that's why Paul makes such a big deal of the Thessalonians becoming imitators of him in verse 6. Because they saw through Paul's conduct what it meant to preach the gospel and they saw it and they knew, therefore, what they were getting themselves into when they decided, yes, that's for real, I'm going to follow it. And they did it. They counted the cost. And so in receiving their salvation, the joy of the next life, well, it broke into their current life. And despite the persecutions and the afflictions and the vitriol they would have experienced, Paul sees their example and he says, that's how I know. That's how I know that you were chosen by God. You received the message with joy in persecution. The second reason that he knows. Now we see it in verses 8 to 10. They turned from idols to the living and true God. In other words, they genuinely repented. Let's have a read from verse 8. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Archaea, your faith in God has become known everywhere. Therefore, we do not need to say anything about it, for they themselves report what kind of reception you gave us. They tell how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, Jesus who rescues us from the coming wrath. Now, in the theology of the Bible, idol worship, idolatry, it was the number one sin perpetrated by the Gentiles. Now, the Jews who knew God, who were in a covenant relationship with him, they would always get pinned for disobeying and transgressing the law. But the Gentiles, well, they got done in for worshipping other gods. Now, the reason that this was such a big deal is because there is only one God the living and true God, the God who made everything, the God who rules everything and everyone. And what had happened is that whenever you commit idolatry, you are basically taking the worship that God deserves 
and you are putting it uh, over in a place that isn't uh, supposed to be receiving it. So all the honor and the praise and the glory that God deserves, your whole entire selves, because he made you as well, well, you take those things and you praise and you honor and you glorify and you give yourselves to things that are created, things that are nothing like God or have any of his intrinsic glory, uh, things that are essentially blocks of wood that you carved with your own two hands. Now, the Bible's response to this is to go, that is as offensive to God as it is ridiculous to reason. And what had happened in the lives of the Thessalonians, as Paul watched on, is that they had seen the ridiculousness of their idolatry and they had repented. They had turned from their idols and turned back to God. Because you've got to do both things. Human beings will always be worshipping something. And so it's not enough to say no to the false gods. You have to say yes to God. It's not enough to merely renounce your sin. You have to offer your whole self to the living and true God in his service. And some of us, I think, will probably need to think a bit about that. You might believe the gospel up here. Uh, You might be culturally Christian. You might have grown up in church. It's just been your parents' religion, but it's just the thing you do. You hop in their car when you go to church on Sunday. But the reality is that during the the week, you you aren't living for God. It hasn't sunk into your day to day. And so instead of um, worshipping God, what you do is you chase your ambitions. You pursue your pleasures, partying, relationships, study academics, whatever it is. Uh, And if that's you... You cannot claim the certainty that Paul is giving to the Thessalonians in this passage. Because they had responded to the word, they knew that they were chosen by God because it was exemplified in their lives. You can have that certainty, but that's if you repent as the Thessalonians did and turn from idols to serve the living and true God and offer him your worship. And so what Paul says to the Thessalonians in chapter 1 is this, here's what I know. You were chosen by God, and I see it because of the way that it has changed you. And from this point on, he then moves. He stops talking about what he knows, and he moves to what you know, what they know. And he says it there in verse 5, and then he explains it pretty well all through chapter 2. What does he say in chapter 1, verse 5? Well, you know how we lived among you for your sake. And really what he is saying and doing here is that the message that they received... They can, it can be trusted because the messengers that brought it can be trusted. You know how he lived among you for your sake. Now, I said before that salvation can only come through the speaking of the word, and that is true. The spirit working through the word is the only thing required to bring somebody to faith in Jesus. The means through which that word comes is of secondary importance, Uh, And to kind of prove the point, I've heard a story. I've never been able to legitimately validate it, but it sounds weird enough to be true. Um, There's a story of a man who became a Christian through a South Park episode. Now, that's probably a bit before your time. Think Rick and Morty, but like double R-rated. That's how bad this show was. And they were mocking Christianity, but in mocking it, they were actually representing it accurately. And this guy became a Christian because he heard the gospel uh, from the mouths of donkeys, right? Um, but that having, having said that, um, even though that, that is theologically true, the means through which the message comes is not therefore unimportant. Uh, in fact, humanly speaking, our character and our conduct as messengers of that message 
may be the only thing that persuades somebody to take us seriously enough to listen to what we're saying rather than just dismiss it completely out of hand. And so what Paul does here is he appeals to two things that, uh, about how he brought the message that should give the Thessalonians assurance that they haven't been tricked, they haven't been sold a shoddy product. And he says to them, here's what you know. First of all, you know our pure motives. He says it in verse 2 of chapter 2. We had previously suffered and been treated outrageously in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in the face of strong opposition. So Paul is putting his chops on the board here. This is how certain he is that what he is saying is true. Let's keep reading verse 3. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. So in other words, we're not trying to gather a following. We don't have a quota of converts. We're not getting commission for this Thessalonians. We're doing this because God gave us the message. You see it there. He, they, he entrusted it to them. And we're trying to please him by presenting it simply, sincerely, without modification. And when we did that, we suffered for it. Let's keep reading, though. Verse 5. You know we never used flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We were not looking for praise from people, not from you or anyone else, even though as apostles of Christ we could have asserted our authority. Instead, we were like young children among you. And as you look over those verses, I want you to notice what is driving Paul in all of this. He wants to please God. Now, don't get me wrong, he wanted the Thessalonians to come to faith. And if they hadn't, he would have been really, really disappointed. He loved these guys. But he would rather that, that they didn't come to faith and stay true to God as the one who has entrusted his message to them, as the one who tests their hearts, than to tamper the message to kind of elicit a confession of faith from those he was preaching to. And so he says to the Thessalonians, you know that our motives were pure. And so you can trust our message. But it's more than just the motives. Uh, we can keep reading. Uh, we, we find out one more thing that they know. Uh, and it's that they know the pure conduct of Paul and the others. So let's keep reading again, halfway through verse 7. Just as a nursing mother cares for her children, so we cared for you. Because we loved you so much, we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well. Surely you remember, brothers and sisters, our toil and hardship. You worked, we worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And as you read those words, you really just get a sense of how much he loved these guys, don't you? Look at the metaphors he's using. A nursing mother with her children, a father with his own children. There's kind of like a familial tenderness here that characterises his conduct. 
such that even though he was preaching to please God and not man, he was doing it in such a way that it made it, made it abundantly clear that the Thessalonians, to, to them, that he was motivated out of a love for them and for their eternal destiny, not merely a duty. And so he gave of himself and he asked for nothing in return. And in the process of witnessing to what a life under the, uh, the Lordship of Christ looked like, he was actually able to show them the authenticity of that message. Like I said before, it is the word that brings faith. But when the word is lived out, it comes with a persuasiveness that even if it is rejected, it leaves people saying, those guys are legit. So what does Paul say to the Thessalonians? Well, you know how we lived among you for your sake. The messenger matched the message And so you can trust that what you received is true. So that's what I know. You're chosen by God. Here's what you know, how we lived among you. What is it that you think we know? Well, I think there are two things. And here's the first one. We can trust the message. Have to be careful here. Because even though scripture is written for us, it's not written to us, at least not in the first instance. We're not the Thessalonians. Paul didn't convert us. But as we look on on this intimate interaction between the two of these guys 2,000 years ago, the one thing that is abundantly clear is that the message that Paul preached, the message that the Thessalonians received and which changed them, is the real deal. Now, the passage hasn't been entirely clear on what that message is. It's sort of been kind of assumed content up until this point as Paul has been writing. Uh, But there have been hints. Uh, We've already seen a few of them. We've already seen that it has to do with the worship of the true God. Um, We've also seen chapter 1, verse 10, that there is wrath coming in the world. Not wrath, but wrath coming into the world, which Jesus somehow, who being raised from the dead, delivers us from. But we actually have to go back to the account in Acts chapter 17 where it records what Paul preached to get a sense of what it is that he actually said to them. And I think we see it in two places. Um, The first is in Acts chapter 17 verse 3 uh, where Paul's activity is described. It says Paul explained and proved that the Messiah had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Messiah, he said. Not only is he talking about what the Messiah would do, but he actually identifies who he is. And then a little bit later on, um, these are the opposition. These are the guys who are accusing Paul of doing horrible things. And just like South Park, they get it right. They say in verses 6 to 7, these men are defying Caesar's decrees, um, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. So some concepts swirling around here. Messiah, king, has to do with rule. Essentially, what we're seeing here is that the living and true God's promised Messiah, the one through whom he would save the world from sin and death and reconcile it back to himself, that Messiah has been revealed and declared king. And his name is Jesus. And so now what he does is he calls on all people everywhere to repent, turn from their idols, turn to the living and true God, place their faith in the King Jesus, and so find salvation and escape the wrath that is to come. And that message, what we learn from these chapters, that message, we can trust that message. And knowing that is important, 
Because as our society moves further and further away from its Christian roots and it becomes more and more post-Christian, the message that we believe, the message that we preach, becomes more and more weird. I was doing some walk-up with Josh Wise earlier this week and we got into this great conversation with a guy called Charlie. And there was this moment in the conversation, we're sitting around a table where we were talking about Adam and Eve. He'd asked a question about how, you know, all these other people kind of got populated, isn't it just incest? And I thought to myself, man, what I believe is just really, really strange. We're talking about Adam and Eve and there's a talking snake and for some reason, you know, they, they took a bite from a piece of fruit and all of a sudden the world is condemned to hell and then there's a virgin birth and there's exorcisms and the one who I call my king was raised from the dead, has been alive for 2,000 years somewhere, so he's the oldest person in the history of the world and he's in heaven wherever that is. It's just odd. And I'm trying to convince Charlie that this is for real. And God is calling you to convince your friends that this is for real. And that's why it's so important that what we know is that this weird, crazy message, even though it's foolishness to the world, is to us who are being saved the power of God for salvation. And that when we speak it, it changes lives. So that's the first thing that we know. We can trust the message. Second, we should imitate the messenger. Now, um, there's a lot in this passage that we can and should imitate from Paul, uh, but I think there is one particular thing in this passage that speaks to our context, and we see it back in chapter 1, verse 6. He says, You became imitators of us and of the Lord... I think this is significant. We'll talk about the things later, but I was kind of trucking on Facebook this morning and I wasn't going to put this in, but I kind of thought this was way too good to pass up because it just seemed really on message. So um, you see the imitation game happening here. Jesus is imitated by Paul, is imitated by us. And this is really just poking out the, the fact that when we try to do that, it really just feels like we're pretenders. But the thing that I want to point out as we see the Thessalonians example is that they actually look remarkably like Spider Man when they try it. They don't just put a bag on their head and look like a ridiculous dope. They actually pull it off. And that tells me that we can too. What is it that they imitate? Well, have a look again at verse 6. And we're going to get that off because that's just going to be distracting. They imitated Paul and the Lord because they welcomed the message in the midst of severe suffering with the joy given by the Holy Spirit. And so they became a model to all the believers in Macedonia and Archaea. And so I think one of the most significant things in this passage is the circumstances under which the message came. It came in persecution. And so when Paul brought that weird, crazy, trustworthy message, he knew he would suffer for it. But he did it anyway. And in doing so, what he did is he modelled to the Thessalonians what it looked like to follow Jesus. And just as Jesus suffered for the truth, they would too. But just as Jesus' suffering brought many sons to glory, it would be through our steadfast witness to that truth that God's power would be displayed and his message would be received and people would come to faith. And I think one of the most striking images in this passage is there in verse 8 because it shows us what happens when we successfully imitate the Lord Jesus. The Lord's message rang out from you, not only in Macedonia and Archaea. Your faith in God has become known 
everywhere. And can I just say, what a vision for the ministry of the Christian Union at UWA. That we, imitating Paul as he imitates Christ, takes that crazy, weird, trustworthy message to our friends and our classmates, our strangers that we meet in walk-up, our opponents in our shoots, our mates in college, knowing that as we imitate the messenger and proclaim the trustworthy message, it would sound forth and spread and become known all throughout the campus. That's the Christian Union. They're crazy idiots, but they're for real. They're kind and they're gracious and they're earnest and no matter what flack we give them, they stay on message. And they're growing. I wonder why. Why?